I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Cabin fever has started to set in as we spill over into the second half of the lockdown. Every day is Groundhog Day. You thought this would be the opportunity to write the great South African novel, but instead you spend hours reading COVID-19 worst-case scenarios, taking your temperature every seven minutes, and fixating on the rising number of worldwide infections. We're traveling into the heart of the lockdown to bring you I'm a Booker Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, a short and sweet distraction from the pandemic, because what you need to do right now is relax, stay at home, and avoid the coronavirus like the plague. Author's Lockdown, T-4. Today's guest has written two very different books. The first is On Your Bike, which is a guide to mountain biking in South Africa. The second is Paper Tiger, which is an engrossing account of what happened to the Cape Times when Iqbal Survey took over the independent group. Chris Whitfield, the author of these books, knows what he's talking about. He is an accomplished mountain biker with four Cape Epic Finishers t-shirts hanging in his cupboard. And he's also a former political journalist who documented the transition from apartheid to democracy. He was the editor of the Cape Times and the Cape Argus and was the most senior editorial person at Independent when it was taken over by survey. This episode comes with a disclaimer. I worked at Independent at the time of the takeover and consider Chris and his Paper Tiger co-author, Alida Danois, friends, and know them to be principled editors who have shown deep commitment to ethical journalism and press freedom. Before survey arrived, I had witnessed Chris take on the Scrooge-like management that looted the company on behalf of its Irish owners. Chris fought fiercely for editorial independence and was also the main driver behind the relaunch of the Cadet School, which was an important vehicle for transformation in the company. Welcome to I'm a Booker Booker, Chris. Can you please read us an extract from Paper Tiger? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, the extract I'm going to read you is called Mario. It's a slightly light-hearted element to the book, which is not a light-hearted book. And it begins like this. In the Cape Times newsroom, a near-life-size cardboard cutout of a macho actor in a leather jacket and cowboy hat, his thumbs hooked nonchalantly in the belt of his black jeans, became an unlikely figure around which the staff rallied. For some reason, nobody seems to remember quite why, he was nicknamed Mario. According to Melanie Gosling, Mario had arrived at the Cape Times art section from some PR promoting some new second-rate TV series. The arts editor didn't want it, so the cutout ended up in the newsroom. Gosling remembers that reporter Zalani Kuryana was particularly fond of Mario and would bring him back to his desk if other reporters claimed him when he was out on the job. When Donoir was axed, Mario took on a new persona and appearance. Somebody photocopied a photograph of a leader's face and stuck this over Mario's face. So then we had an almost life-size Mario, a leader, cardboard cutout, says Gosling. He, she was often positioned by the reporters to look straight through the glass partition into the office of editor Hassan Abada. Mario was a living statue. He moved around during the night and bits and pieces were added to him. One morning, he was found with bits of pink feather boa around his neck, Gosling says. Then a leader won the Nat Nakasa Award for Courageous Journalism. Mario had to reflect that, particularly as the Cape Times gave her award all of two lines at the bottom of page six. 
One of the reporters made a red and white rosette bearing the words Nat Nakasa Award winner and pinned it to Mario Alida's jacket. It was my small act of rebellion, says the reporter. It made me incredibly proud to have a leader in the newsroom, knowing that it likely annoyed the new newsroom leadership. And that's it. Chris, you, you rode on your bike with your brother Tim and Paper Tiger with a leader. What is it like working with another author? Um, I, both, I actually enjoy working, collaborating with people. So I enjoy both, both uh, experiences. They're obviously very different people. Um, but it worked well, and it you know it takes a lot of the weight off doing things. It, it prompts you. It one on the one hand, it's it makes it easier because you know there's half the work. But on the other hand, it it it, it makes you get out in the morning and, and prompt you. You know because the lead, you know a leader's working on the book, so you should be working as well. So it's a, it's a good motivator. What did you think when you heard that the Irish had sold the group to Iqbal Survey? Um, I was cautiously optimistic. I mean, we'd always wanted a South African owner and we were, um, for years, we'd been worried about the, the kind of bottom line approach of the Irish. Um, but obviously, I didn't know Iqbal terribly well, so I was kind of waiting to see. But generally speaking, there was a definitely a sense, a positive sense, yeah, that there were, and that there was an opportunity uh, for, the, for the, the newspapers to actually grow, to, for investment to come in. And initially, Iqbal made all the right words. It sounded like that was exactly what was going to happen. So newspapers around the world and in South Africa were in serious trouble when he bought Independent Group. It doesn't make sense to buy a newspaper stable. What do you think his motives were? It's a, it's a, it's a difficult one to answer. I mean, there's, a lot of people uh, suggest that it was a vanity buy um, and owning a newspaper group is a, there is a status and a prestige attached to it. So there, I think there might have been an element of that. Um, but also it's a, a way of, of exerting influence. And I think they might, that might have been a factor too, that uh, you, through the newspapers you can, um, you can sort of, for example, as, as a hypothetical example, you could promote uh, a, news, a, a political party of your, of your own liking. Um, the other suggestion has been that it was, a, it was effectively a bigger business strategy in terms of which the newspapers would be uh, used to foster uh, Iqbal Survey's interests in his other businesses. Um, and various people do believe that that was, that was one of the motivations. One of the aspects of the book that is very telling and actually quite heartbreaking is how cruelly a leader who was the editor of the Cape Times before she was fired, how cruelly she was treated and how staff members were bullied. Why do you think the Cape Times was specifically targeted? I think a leader, um, for some reason, and I, I, can't, I can't quite put my finger on the psychology, uh, perhaps because she is a, a sort of very independent person, and um, I think a leader kind of got under the new ownership skin uh, very quickly. And um, I don't, uh, you know, she, it was evident from day one that she was going to start, her relationship was not going to be great. She also launched before the takeover, she launched an attempt to have a staff trust put together in terms of which the staff would have a part of the company, would control part of the company, would have a stake in the company. And um, that might have annoyed him. I'm not sure. But the other aspect to it, I think, is that the Cape Times in this Cape Town environment has been for many, many years a very, very influential newspaper. Well, let me put it this way. It was a very influential newspaper. It isn't anymore.
There are serious allegations against Survey and others like Tony Howard and Karima Brown. Has there been any response? Not, uh, not a legal response as such. Um, and I, I have spoken to lawyers who had queries from various people about, uh, you know, whether they had some grounds to take action against us. But um, no, so no, but no formal legal response. But the Independent ran a, a series of articles which set out to debunk uh, some of the content of the of the book, and which were they were you know beneath contempt. Actually, it was just absolute rubbish. When last did you read a copy of the Cape Times? I can't. I honestly can't remember. I I subscribed to it for a while after. Um, I left, and it just became too annoying for me to read it because the the kind of decline was so sharp, uh, standards were dropping, um, the genders were so obvious. So I, I stopped my subscription, and I don't think since that day, which must be three or four or five years ago, I've I've actually sat down and read one from cover to cover. Occasionally, I go to a coffee shop and I pick one up and. And it takes me about three minutes to go through it. What would it say? What would it take to save the paper? You know, ironically, I think the Times of the entire group, the Cape Times, perhaps one paper in Durban, perhaps the Star in Johannesburg, are the only ones which might be savable, uh, rescuable. And um, what it would require is, is somebody with deep pockets who is prepared to invest. I think probably the best bet would be for a an existing publishing house uh, to invest in papers like those, a couple of the papers in the group, and to sort of uh, use their existing resources like their distribution networks and um, to, to and publishing synergies to to get to put the papers together. So there would be a saving for them. It wouldn't be a massive overhead, and they might in that in that instance be able to rescue them. The Cape Towns has got still got a residual uh, reputation um, which might be which might be appealing to people some people I mean I personally I would love to see the paper resurrected and and I would love to read it again as I used to are you writing anything else at the moment I'm trying to write a crime novel um, <laughs> <laughs> something else completely different which uh, well Dion put it this way Dion may needn't lose any sleep I'm uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I'm, I'm an amateur in this uh, context, and uh, but it's just I'm just having a lot of fun with it. We just wonder who gets murdered. <laughs> <laughs> well, put it this way: it's about it's about state capture, and the central villains are the are the bad businessmen who are ripping off the country. What is your strategy for not going stir crazy during this lockdown? Um, sure, it's a it's a difficult one. I've, I've had one great blessing that um, my daughter had a child, our first grandchild, and that's been a great distraction. And so we've had a lot of uh, Zoom and Skype meetings about that, and looking at pictures, and it's been very exciting. But for the rest, it's a variety of things. I ride a, a exercise bike. I write as much as I can. I bonded with my camera again. I'm taking a lot of photographs. We do play a lot of Scrabble, um, my wife, daughter, and I. We do quizzes. We devote an extraordinary amount of time of planning our meals. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, yeah, I think that's it. Just, just Oh, the, the other thing is finding ways to exercise our dog, which is a real – we live in a, in a small house, and um, our dog used to 
was used to doing two little long walks a day. So now we're having to stand on the brand and throw a ball out into the street for her to go and get some exercise. What do you realize that you won't need anymore after the lockdown? There's a lot of things. And what I will need is, is friends to go riding with on my bike and coffee. I miss, I miss coffee, uh, going to coffee shops and talking to my mates. Uh, I miss that a lot. What won't I miss? I kind of... The, oddly, if you, uh, the thing that I don't miss at all, and I didn't realize that it used to irritate me so much, is this kind of battering that we got from brands. You know, the advertising and everywhere you go, um, this kind of commercial world that was being imposed on you. You know, even I didn't even realize it. But now when I sit and watch TV with far fewer ads and I'm basically developing a lifestyle where you are a bit more removed from, from that kind of world, I, I realized that I didn't like it much. And what's the first thing you're going to do when the lockdown is lifted? <laughs> I think well, I'll get on my bicycle. I'll go for a long ride, stop off and have a coffee. And on the way home, I'll buy myself a very expensive bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and now for the sound effects, Rorschach test. <laughs> oh, that sounds like me trying to come to terms without having a glass of wine at supper. I become very um, hectic and over-energetic. <laughs> oh, that sounds like you put your recording device next to my bed at night and, and listen to me snoring. <laughs> that sounds... Uh, that sounds like me the leaving home on my back on the morning that the that the lockdown is lifted. That sounds like the collective celebration, the entire city of Cape Town enjoying that morning, those moments once they're allowed out on the streets again. Chris Whitfield is the author of On Your Bike and Paper Tiger, an engrossing account of what happened to the Cape Times when Iqbal Survey took over the independent group. Thank you for listening to Amabuka Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, live from the lockdown. You can subscribe to Amabuka Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Amabuka Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. Amabuka Booker. Amabuka Booker.